Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode, I or one of my colleagues will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist, or violin maker. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to two violin makers, Peter Greiner and Robert Young. They're both phenomenally successful and with a very broad interest in music, musicians, violin making, in Robert's case, also philosophy. I hope you enjoy. Peter, how is the lockdown experience in Israel and are you managing to make any any violins while you're in isolation there? Um, for me personally, it's a quite good experience here. Um, we have a nice family time. I have actually um, some hours a day to make some scrolls. It's the only thing I can do here in Israel because I only took the wood and the tools for, for scroll making and um, sitting on the roof terrace and enjoying the good weather. Fantastic. And I, I can just say for anybody listening that can hear a kind of wailing in the background that Peter has uh, young twin boys. So that it's not one of his violins that's being tried. It's actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually a, a baby um, crying. Well, actually, how old are they now, Peter? Two. Two, so Two. they're not really bab- not babies at all. No, actually. no, they are they are quite um, active at the moment and um, yeah, <laughs> loud. <laughs> and Robert, is your experience similar in London? Are you managing to make probably make more than scrolls because you've got a bit more opportunity? Yeah, I've got more access to wood and tools at the moment, and um, it's turning out to be a remarkably productive period because I normally spend about a third of the year traveling. And um, actually being in one place has turned out to be an extremely creative experience in the midst of everything that's happening in the outside world. So the quiet of the workshop has been a kind of sanctuary in the midst of uh, everything happening around us. And um, cellos are being born in the midst of it. Fantastic. So for both of you, you, you're different violin makers, um, obviously, and you have your, your own styles, but some things must be similar for all violin makers and there must be a method for making a certain number of violins at the same time which are in a different process a different part of the making process so do you have how many do you have on the go at, at one time one for varnishing one in the white and so on um to uh, peter how, how how do you approach that well i, I left around 25 unfinished instruments uh, back in behind in London and the scrolls I'm doing now I think will be 20 30 scrolls so I will use them for the next two three years um, but uh, the, the process of making an instrument normally for me takes at least one year or, or the reality is more two years from start to finish and that is because there are so many instruments parallel in progress right right so you have quite a number at at the same time and is that the same for you robert um because i focus a lot on cello making i would say the number is significantly smaller at the moment i'm working on four cellos and um they also overlap and um 
and happen, I would say, over the period of a year from start to finish, but with a smaller number of instruments on the go at the same time. And um, usually mixed in with that, a few violins and violas. But um, I would say that I'm not as systematic or organized as Peter is in, ter- in those terms. And um, <laughs> I'm fully engaged right. in one instrument until it gets to a certain point and then take up another one if there's an original that I've been inspired by and want to put into that instrument in a particular way. So, um, but I think, again, because of the focus on cello making or that being emphasized, I tend to take on less. Also, it just takes up a lot more room having four yes. being varnished at the same time. So one or two being varnished and one or two being made at the same time. And you both um, uh, copy, if you like, the old masters, um, if I can call them that. And do you, do you ever feel that um, you should or you would like to closely follow your own creative force i mean is it is it something of an irritation that you have to go back and and copy these old masters because that's the you know that's where the market that's where the market is or is it more that there's something about the craft of stradivari and guaneri that can't be surpassed so you you might as well copy them and how do you see that peter i personally don't think that i'm copying old instruments i mean it's the question how far does copying go the fact that i make instruments that look old does not mean that i'm copying old instruments uh, when you for example look at a typical viome with a guaneri model it is never a copy it is very much a viome and when i show one of my instruments to you you will never see oh it's a guaneri you will all the time see um, that uh, Peter Greiner instrument. So it, if it is a copy, it's a very bad copy and with not the intention to copy. Um, you have nowadays to choose somehow a direction of in which direction your instrument stylistically should go. And um, there are the main directions of Stradivari and the Guarneri, and I choose the Guarneri way, and I developed my own model based on this Guarneri idea. But copying is not my intention. Mm-hmm. Right. And is, is that how you see it, Robert? I mean, I, it's for me been really enlightening having this conversation in the workshop with Peter. And um, I would say I profoundly appreciate his resistance to using this term copying, because if you go into a room of contemporary instruments where everyone is copying one model, the Ole Bull, for example, it feels like you're at a conference of, uh, of Elvis impersonators in a way. And even if someone gets very close to... You know the the feeling of an original, and sometimes it can even be indistinguishable at first glance. There's a question of authenticity in um, copying that I think Peter brings to this conversation in a way that's really important. And I'm thinking back at you know Cremona in the 18th century. You could tell one instrument from one family so easily and how distinct it was from the person working down the street. I mean, uh, Rogeri looked nothing like a, uh, looked nothing like a Magini and uh, a Rogeri looks nothing like a Strad. And, um, and yet today there's a kind of homogenization that's quite often thought after in copying. 
that I think is unfortunate. So this idea of using a classical model as a touchstone or a reference point or a point of departure or inspiration in order to develop one's own approach, I think is much more exciting. It's like when you hear Yehudi Menuhin play Bach, you know it's Menuhin. And um, I think that's actually more exciting in the way that that potentially relates to contemporary making. But again, it's been quite informative, you know, having this conversation at the bench in Hampstead with Peter, because my own views on it have evolved in a way that I think are, are challenging and quite interesting for me in terms of personal practice. So in a way, um, you, it's, it's more being inspired by the, the, the style and the um, perfection of the the old the, the old instruments but along with that is the is how far one antiques the um how far one antiques the instrument and to make it appear old and in a way a lot of the beauty in these old instruments is the way that they wear over the years isn't it and the and and the patina that you get and so a, a lot of it is wanting to um capture capture that um like the aging of an old wine. Um, so when it comes to antique, I mean, sometimes I see instruments that are so heavily antiqued that if they were actually an old instrument, you'd probably want to restore it. It looks like it's had bad, you know, bad restoration done already. Um, so, I, I, what's your view? What 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 are you trying to achieve with the antiquing of the instrument? Um, on the end, these instruments end up somewhere on a stage played by a musician. And most of the instruments nowadays are still old instruments. And the modern instrument should not stick out, not their sound should be different to the sound of old instruments. And they should also not from a distance look completely different. So that is my explanation why I antique an instrument that it's not that it's not a stigma that people say, oh, that's a new one, that it really integrates in all the other instruments which are played on the stage. And on top of that, yes, uh, this wear of the varnish of an old instrument is much more beautiful than the unique color of a new, modern, fully varnished instrument. So that is the aesthetic reason why I do it. But I think the main reason is still that I want to have this um, integration in the music life that it doesn't sound like a new instrument and it doesn't look like a new instrument that it looks and it sounds like all the old famous instruments yes and um and robert is that how how you view it i mean i think what peter was just referring to to in terms of you know the unified color in a contemporary instrument and that being in some ways jarring particularly if it's seen on stage. In addition to that, there's this idea that, you know, we spend a month getting the ground color the way that we want it. And to completely cover that over with a monochrome surface in a way is much less complex. The varnish process is extremely complex. And antiquing and patina allow for a multi-varied view of what is actually on the instrument. Because there are many colors that go onto an instrument. And revealing them through patina, I think, is quite a painterly process. And I, I quite often think with putting on patina and, and doing antiquing, and it allows us to be painters in a way. 
And there's also this idea of visual punctuation. If you see a completely monochrome surface, but there's some kind of visual punctuation and variation in the surface, every aspect of it becomes more compelling and more inviting. I mean, we quite often want to spend time poring over an old instrument because of its complexity. And I think the more painterly and well-done contemporary patina actually emulates that invitation to explore the complexity, the visual and aesthetic complexity. And I mean, one thing, Simon, working with you with cellos and looking at patina and instruments that I made and that you were art directing to to a large extent, you know, this idea of, um, of subtlety and we were talking about 50 to 100 years of loving wear on an instrument and some of the more... Um, subtle aspects of patina can actually be quite beautiful and can play with the surface in a way that's potentially more refined. And, um, and, the, and I think there's no question that the appearance of the violin and the sense of texture and if you've got is very important. If you've got a very brittle, hard looking varnish, it's quite hard for the ear not to hear hmm. a brittle, hard sound because you have to look at it in the whole, don't you? You can't just separate the sound out completely from the appearance. Um, have you ever made a fully varnished instrument, Robert? Yes. And what was your experience? I think they sound differently. I think they do not sound as good as an instrument that lost already half of its varnish. I mean, I, I'm thinking of one cello in particular that I made for a French player who wanted zero antiquing. In a way, it's more challenging to do a, a really fine-looking, um, completely varnished instrument. And in terms of the tonal quality, I mean, it, there's a lot more weight on it. There's a lot more material. It, it is covered in in more stuff on the surface, and I do question how that affects the sound, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, in, in the Hill workshop, we are using the uh, Messiah model of Stradivari, which is completely covered with varnish. And for me, that might be a psychological thing. It looks new and it also sounds more like a new instrument with a bit the negative idea of how a new instrument sounds. It's a bit rough, very loud, very not fragile, but very strong brilliant sound. So I'm not sure if that is a psychology um, involved here, how I see something and how I hear it. I think there is psychology involved because I, it would be, I would find it almost impossible to enjoy a glass of claret if it, if it were green. Mm. Um, doesn't matter how well it tasted, uh, it just wouldn't be the same or if it had a bad smell. <laughs> so it's, um, I, I, I think one has to see it uh, as a whole. And that goes for the color of the varnish, the, the texture, the way in which the layers have been revealed with wear. And also the wood and the, the, the type of wood that's used, I think. Yeah, um, I, I would even go so far that I, for my instrument, want to have a really bright, aggressive color in the varnish. And somehow I also want to have this rough sound that, that reminds me on a brilliant red-orange hmm. color. So this, this idea of what we hear and what we see with our eyes is also very much connected in, in how I 
want to have the violin or the connection between the sound and the object violin. So the idea that the varnish is, you know, it's often repeated that the secret of Stradivari is in the varnish. Um, it doesn't seem a million miles away from as an element of the truth anyway. Robert. Would you? I mean, the, the longest running research project using the most advanced tools of chemistry um, in human history is an investigation into the varnish of Stradivari, starting shortly after he died and continuing to this day. Um, there are many questions. With each year and with each you know, significant research project, I would say there are fewer and fewer. And um, I like to think of it in terms of Neapolitan cooking as well, where you have four main ingredients, but it's only a Neapolitan who can make a real Neapolitan meal. And um, I ultimately come down to thinking that varnishing is more like cooking and finding good, good ingredients to use than having some uh, mystery regarding um, what their composition is or how they're put together. There's something in the hand, there's something in the process and the application that I think is, is the most difficult to get close to. Because, I mean, Peter's work on varnish and the research project he did was remarkably revealing in terms of the science of varnish and pushing this research project forward um, and left fewer questions. And yet we still have questions. And I think a lot of them are related to technique. Yes, is it not fair to say that really the the basic ingredients of the Stradivari varnish are, are no massive mystery? Is that fair to say, Peter, from, from your research? Yes, I think it is fair to say that it's all discovered what is inside the varnish. Um, well, no, that, that's... <laughs> okay, we, we cut this out. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, um, it's, it's almost discovered what is in the varnish and the last secret will still remain but um, it seems to be a straightforward varnish that we can reproduce now as well um, what we cannot reproduce is the age those 300 years between various time and now what this changes the color of the wood the color of the varnish and the surface of the varnish we cannot um, we, we, we cannot reproduce that no so I, I wonder how our instruments will look in 300 years if they will be like a strat nowadays or different I don't know and there are so many variables aren't there in the way that it ages with humidity or oxidization and, and these things but also in the way that it was originally applied because you could apply a lot of thin coats um, or you know fewer thick coats of varnish I, I mean just the possibilities are endless and one feels that it does come down to human instinct in the end uh, as, as to what is the most effective way of of, of dealing with varnish is 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 that something you would agree with? Yeah, totally. I think it's still, when you give somebody a varnish recipe, he will not have the same result than the second person that you give the same recipe. It will definitely end up with two different uh, results. 
Well, I know that very well from uh, recipe books that I've bought from great chefs, and I see what they produce, and then I use the same ingredients. <laughs> it's a very different result. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's also with them telling you the method as well. So, I mean, I, I think... I think Not it's surprising. interesting as well just to look into, I mean, Stradivari's Tellos, for example, and the wide variety of varnishes that you find within a 15-year period, you know, where you have luminous golden grounds and very orange, vibrant varnishes, and then deeper reds and a darker brown ground. And um, there's such wide variability in, in a short span of time um, in one maker's work that we use as a reference point as if it were entirely consistent, but the amount of variability yes. within his own, just his cellos, I think is immense. And I think that's good to look at because ultimately we're making decisions on what we like. And, um, you know, thinking of what Peter was saying about sound and aesthetics and how these relate, you know, again, thinking of cellos, I gravitate towards a darker, deeper, richer, thicker kind of varnish. And, um, with the idea that I like a darker, deeper, richer, you know, bolder kind of sound. And um, and I think you can find enormous reference points of great variability just within one maker's work. And do you think there are some immutable truths about uh, the construction of a violin with geometry, for example? If you, a, Mozart, a Mozart sonata um, takes its structure using the golden ratio of 1 to 1.6, roughly. So exposition development sections are going to be about 1.6 times the length of the recapitulation. And this, you see this also in, um, in fact, in the Mona Lisa, you, you know, this, this same ratio is there. And with a violin, you have it, of course, don't you, with the, the upper bouts about 1.6 times the center bouts. And so do you think that shape, the violin was always destined to be that shape following on from other art or and, and does do you think it affects the sound i think there's no calculation involved i think it's just a pure taste of the artist that feels this proportion and i think that um, the mona lisa has not a calculation behind and i doubt that mozart counted his bars um but people with a good aesthetic taste automatically go for these uh, golden proportions, I think. And when you look at the old Cremonese instruments, they are not the same. So it's not possible actually to calculate with all of them the same, uh, to find out that they have the same a calculation method behind. So either they all had a different calculation method or they didn't have a method at all and just let their good taste uh, speak to, or to uh, their good taste guide them to make these nice proportions. And definitely it has nothing to do with the sound quality because that would mean we just have to reproduce the proportion and we would be there and it's not like that. Yes, I must say that does make sense because you get cellos that are reduced in size, the, the, the very big ones that were made um, pre-1700. Some of them, have, many of them have been reduced in, in, in size and they still sound wonderful. So it must be other things at work. Um, what, what's your view, Robert? I mean, I think the, the idea of internalizing uh, proportions that one finds in nature 
that Peter refers to, or this idea that it, that an artist has has a kind of uh, unique access through observation um, of nature and the work of of people and craft people and artists in other domains, and in some ways interpreting that and internalizing it doesn't require that it be calculated from the outset. Um, and yet I see, you know, a language of mathematics that exists in nature um, that one finds in music and that one finds everywhere in medieval craftsmanship where I think there was a kind of literacy for geometry and proportion that um, declined in the 19th century in particular. But I think there was a very pragmatic capacity for people in different areas of craft, architecture in particular, where people would, because it worked, because they found it beautiful, and because it was very practical, would apply proportional systems to drawings that they would do. And facility with a compass and its relation to natural forms, I think, was much more available because it was a language that a lot of illiterate craftspeople actually were comfortable speaking. And um, they were comfortable speaking it, I think, with their tools, as you can see in a lot of you know, medieval stonemasonry work and things like that. The degree to which that determines or defines instrument design, I think, is an open question. And I think the idea that it determines sound is, again, easily debunked by recut violas, often which sound you know, spectacular. And, and yeah. the idea that pure geometry equals pure sound, I think, is e easily... Um, overridden. And what becomes so exciting, I think, is in makers where you have a kind of backdrop of, of geometrical practice. If you're walking around Florence and seeing this incredible purity of form and proportion, to what degree does that influence you when you sit down and draw a violin freehand? And I think the capacity for certain makers to internalize that and interpret it and express it in their own work is actually really exciting. But um, I would agree that it doesn't require calculation from the outset, although calculation can be a usable tool. Yeah, the, the problem sometimes what I see with modern contemporary makers is that they limit their themselves and their creativity with calculations that they limit their freedom of uh, developing their own model and their own form. And it's similar with limiting your freedom with making a copy, which is the problem of modern makers as well, doing exact copies. Um, they do not develop their own language mm -hmm. in, in the form. And uh, probably because of that, I have a bit an issue with calculation because calculation guides you to one perfect model which is, on the end, quite boring. Mm -hmm. I think it can be extended even to the idea of composition in music. You know, having access to the principles of counterpoint is, is a great reference point and something to have in the background, but it can create a kind of platform for unique and individual expression and comp composition that can be quite exciting. And I think there's something similar in violin making, where there is a backdrop of architecture and other practices um, but breaking the mold um, while still having some reference to it in practice, I think, can be quite interesting. Yeah, and I, 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 have, think, to, yeah. I have to admit that I even make it on purpose asymmetric 
to to break this symmetry idea to to have it to to bring attention in and to destroy this harmony and purpose yes and you see this with some makers well even stradivari actually he he would not always have his two sound holes exactly opposite each other and uh obviously he had the choice to do that but just not to have things looking too perfect is is important as well but i i think there's a danger isn't there with um something that's being creative created instinctively um where as you say you you don't set about um thinking oh i'll calculate 1.6 times the length of this or that it, it's a very fundamental instinctive thing to do and i i do remember um studying composition at university and I, at which i was absolutely terrible but i do remember that um sometimes i, I the composer that was teaching us I, it never quite worked for me because he would take things like the the golden ratio which he could see in mozart but then apply it on the paper on paper and basically see what it sounded like from the paper rather than taking what it sounds like and writing it on the paper he was doing it the other way around and it didn't work because mozart sounded wonderful and he sounded absolutely dreadful <laughs> so um i i can see that with um with violins and uh, the 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 approach that you take but we, we've talked about um the varnish and the geometry but w when it comes to sound and neither of them are, are key you know the, the key to it on their own what what is what do you think the key determining factors are in sound peter i can tell you what it's not the key um the um it's it's definitely not the material, which is a quite radical um, opinion because a lot of people think that when they use the right wood, then the sound is good, and it's depending on that. And I that's not my experience, and that is not what I um, believe in. It is very much the proportion between when you have one plate, the thickness, the material and the arching. So all three things together give a stiffness of the plate. I think that is very important. Um, but you cannot pick one of these parameters out. You cannot say, oh, the arching is important because you can even things out with, let's say, a stiff arching. You use a very soft material and make it a bit thinner. So it is on the end, when you look at the instrument, everything that has to play together that has to work together with the rest so it's very difficult to answer this question um and it, i don't want to be i don't want to sound vain but i think on the end it's also the quality of the maker that makes the instrument good sounding and that makes a high quality instrument and definitely a long year experience. So I'm now with more than 400 instruments that I can base my experience on. And I think that is very important that you can really have a, this huge database in you with your experience that you know that is good, that is not good. You, I take a, a piece of wood and I think, oh, this is, I have to do this arching and with the next one I have to do it a bit thinner and whatever, you know. It is just very um, intuitive. And for you, Robert, the sound, where, is there a principle 
um, part of the instrument that, that that you think is important for that? I mean, I think a successful instrument, sort of in parallel to what you've both been talking about, is uh, a successful relationship between the author, between an idea, between the process and the material. And I don't think the material, I agree with Peter, it doesn't have to be of a particular kind. It's the ability for the author or the maker to take an idea and to use a particular process and to manipulate a material, whatever it happens to be, successfully. And But the way that those four things collude, um, I think, gives the opportunity to create something spectacular. But if you look at, you know, again, even Stradivari's cellos, the variability in the wood is so wide. You know, there's just enormous variability in the quality of the wood in his work. And then looking at Milanese instruments that used what we would use for furniture to make cellos out of that actually sounds spectacular. But the dialogue between the, the maker and the idea and the process um, and the material that they had at hand, I think does have the capacity to create a successful instrument, visually and acoustically. Um, but I think the way that those things play together determine the success or the failure of an instrument, both visually and acoustically. Great. And um, final thought, really. Um, what, what's the first thing that you are both going to do when, you, um, w when this is finished, <laughs> the, the lockdown for all of us, when we get our freedom back? Peter, what... what what are you looking forward to? Wow. <laughs> I'm actually not looking forward to it. I really enjoy this time here. Um, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I will go straight back to London, to the workshop. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Or if it depends when it is. If it's the summertime, we would probably go for some week somewhere just to make a holiday, to go out, to go to. We are now here in Tel Aviv, in the middle of the city, and I would just like to go somewhere in a forest or in a on, on a lake or on a mountain where I can really feel the nature again. That's what I miss most here. Um, Working-wise, there is so much to do. There are so many instruments without the scroll because I have the scroll here. And um, so I, <laughs> I think for the next half year, just set up instruments with a new neck and scroll on the body. Okay. okay. Sounds exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really, not really exciting, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's, no, that's, that's great. And, and, and Robert, for you... I mean, I have to say, the thing I'm really missing now is hearing live music. Yeah. You know, we're living around the corner from Wigmore Hall, having musicians come in the shop and going to concerts and just being immersed in music. I realized how much a part of my diet that was and how much I miss it, actually. I've made up for it by I bought a hi-fi system and an LP player. And uh, I'm listening to old recordings, which is a great experience on its own. But um, I'm looking forward to that being replaced by someone playing the cello in front of me. And um, yeah, I just want to hear more music in the company of others. Actually. And it goes without saying, we're all looking forward to seeing family and friends and um, being able to enjoy socializing again. So thanks so much to um, Peter and, and, and you, Robert. Um, Pete, hey, thank and, you. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. And um, 
Yes, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much to Peter Greiner and Robert Young. In my next episode, I will be talking to the cellist Ralph Kirschbaum, who is an internationally recognized soloist as well as teacher. And Ralph also founded the Manchester Cello Festival and more recently the Piatigorsky Cello Festival in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. This podcast is brought to you by J&A Beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com. <laughs>